What happens when you combine the most innovative, eccentric and charismatic leaders, disruptors and founders from tech with the pedigree and history of one of the most established institutions within the City of London? The Searching for Mana podcast will be produced in partnership with the London Stock Exchange and will represent one of the most exciting collaborations in the tech space. Welcome on to Searching for Mana Soups. Yeah, excited to be here, Lloyd, and thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you on the show. Fuller introduction, Soups Ranjan, who is the co-founder and chief executive officer with Sardine. Um, I will hand over to you, Soups, to give uh, just in brief a little bit about what um, Sardine is all about uh, and just some context around some scale, if you could be so kind. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah. So uh, uh, we are about a three-year-old startup, Series B. Our thesis is that uh, we are all about safer, faster payments. Or in other words, wherever there is a high-risk payment, uh, Sardine is over there to reduce that risk. right? And the risks that we reduce are essentially payment fraud, identity fraud, or compliance risks. Right? Yeah. So we offer two two products. The first one is our risk platform, which is you know fraud and compliance in one single API, uh, one platform, one dashboard uh, for financial institutions, including fintechs and crypto companies. Uh, the second product is we uh, yeah we also do account funding, and that's first instantiation of that account funding. Uh, we have a crypto on ramp, so you could essentially fund your crypto wallet using ACH bank transfers or using cards. Uh, for that second product, we are live on MetaMask, Brave Browser, and about 20 different uh, wallets. The biggest differentiator for us on the uh, on the payment side is uh, that in any of these uh, high-risk industries, whenever you're loading money into a wallet or whenever you're purchasing crypto, typically conversion rates are really, really low. And then they are low because essentially of uh, fraud reasons. And Sardine takes care of uh, fraud, and we think that fraud and payments are really, or fraud and friction are two sides of the same coin. And we've been able to achieve much higher conversion rates uh, compared to the industry. Thank you so much for giving that um, intro. So look, clearly um, a a mission with some real purpose, already impact. And, um, you know, having looked at, the the traction that you guys have got in quite a short period of time it's so impressive so congratulations uh i know there'll be lots to do so we'll go in that later on in the show but just um some of the kind of um outstanding uh highlights um significant raise in your series b um the leads being um anderson horowitz um which is obviously all-star so a lot of venture capital uh, efforts that you will have had to go through. So also we, we, we'll talk about that, but I'm um, clearly going incredibly well in a, in, in a tricky market condition. Um, and then looking through the list of clients that you've um, partnered with and onboarded, again, it's just massive kind of wish list names. So such a kind of head of steam to this point, but I won't go into that later on in the show so um soups also a bit about um your background it was uh, you know just a rattle for now kind of computer science and then 
see a career in tech, but headline roles with Coinbase and also Revolut as well. So actually, what I'd like you to um, kind of do it before we go into your background is talk about the Genesis story for Sardine. Um, you know, why the name? And then why what, Why at this particular point did you think that Sardine was needed in the market? Yeah, absolutely. So the name is really funny. Uh, so the SAR in Sardine essentially stands for Suspicious Activity Report. Okay. So that is what the, that is what you file with the uh, financial regulator uh, whenever you have a fraud case or a money laundering case, right? And also it's fishy, right? Um, so we can make lots of memes out of it. So uh, it's easy to say it's 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 easy to say in a loud bar in a conference room or in a uh, in a bar, uh, you know, without having to spell it. Amazing. And um, like I said, we'll go into your background, but just. So we get it up front. You know, why did, so you explained what you do, but why did you want to do it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I always wanted to start a company. So Sardine is my uh, uh, first company. And uh, while I was running, uh, you know, payment risk or fraud for Coinbase, uh, my background is, is in cybersecurity or using AI to fight cybersecurity or to, you know, I've used AI to fight things like click fraud and ad tech. Uh, however, I had never, you know, uh, done payment fraud. So it took me a while to essentially first learn payments. And then after that, you know, learn about all the various fraud tactics that fraudsters are using. And uh, Coinbase slash crypto uh, happens to be, you know, the, the, the best place to actually get a learning in this because, you know, Crypto industry attracts some of the most sophisticated fraudsters from, you know, nation states to, you know, uh, two guys in a garage, you know, uh, tinkering. So uh, it was really, really good training grounds. And uh, the more important thing was that, you know, the amount of time it took me to come up to speed, uh, you know, learning the ropes about payments and fraud and fintech, etc., made me made me realize that, you know, uh, as new financial institutions or fintechs get started. Uh, these entrepreneurs, they will quickly have to come up to speed on all things fraud and compliance, right? And therefore, the the the, the need to start a company which is really like a picks and shovels business and the embedded finance movement or in the crypto uh, growth, right, was was very very clear, and uh, that's why we 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 started a company around this. Yeah, thank you. So, what? Um, so so it came to the point in your career where you'd found the thing that you felt well disposed to be sex successful to to create but there had always been an underlying desire to have a company of your own but how far back does that date the the desire to found a company yeah oh uh that i would say you know ever since i was a i was a kid i i wanted to start a company right to be an entrepreneur right uh yeah and it it uh it just so happened that you know, uh, it took me a while to get started, you know, because you know, I'm an immigrant uh, from India. Uh, in it came to the U.S. in the year 2000. It takes a while by the time you actually you know get a green card, etc., because you can't really start a company until you have a permanent residency here, unless you know you you find another co-founder who has permanent residency. So yeah, so that that's that's the rational reason why it took a while. But you know, 
the other thing was that you know, it's a, uh, I'm, I was also at the stage in my career where I had worked at two very high growth startups, Coinbase and Revolut, where they had seen just tremendous growth, right? And I was fortunate to be in the in the front row seat, you know, seeing how the company would come, these companies were being built, new products were being launched. So it, that gave me a, a, a lot of good learning with, yeah. and confidence to go and do this. When when you're in that position, you know, let's say Coinbase, and it's apparent that this thing is potentially seminal uh, in its importance within this new era of technology. Do you for moments forget that entrepreneurial drive and think, well, look, if I gel forevermore with this team, then this could be it. And, I, and I'm happy with that. That desire to set something up was because I wanted an impact. But actually here I'm getting to do it. And, and it's a double-edged question. Or is there always this burning desire that you do want to, for whatever reason, go create your own thing? Uh, you know, so actually there's a very interesting uh, story uh, around Coinbase. So uh, Fred and Brand, the co-founders of Coinbase, they they actually always hired uh, a lot of former founders to come and join them, right? So, you know, I joined Coinbase when we were less than 15 uh, engineers and total number of people in the company was probably less than 60, right? And many of the folks who had joined, you know, even before me and many folks who continue to join after me, they were all ex-founders, right? And they were all uh, coming in and, and, you know, you know, tucking in and you know doing what was needed so that and in our own domain uh, we we all had the the freedom to be entrepreneurial right so when i started the uh, when i started at coinbase i was the first machine learning guy the first data guy um, and then you know i i uh, was given the mandate to run the fraud team uh, so we had a fraud ops team of, of five or six brilliant people so myself plus these five or six folks. And then over time, you know, I hired a few uh, folks. So really the, 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 the team started from like, lit, like literally scratch. And then by the time I left uh, Coinbase, we had a team of about 50 people, you know, uh, with a mandate to essentially bringing our fraud rates to near zero, that being the first mandate, while not you know, affecting conversion rates. And then the second uh, second mandate being, you know, taking care of all things data. So I had the dual role of both data and, and risk, right? Why do you go on to leave? Yeah, so I went on to leave Coinbase because I, I, I stayed there for close to four years. Uh, so I was vested. But then the second reason was uh, while I was at Coinbase, I, I learned a ton about crypto. I learned a ton about, you know, uh, uh, payments, but not as much as I wanted to learn about payments. I learned more about crypto, I would say, uh, because you know uh, most of the folks uh, who were coming to Coinbase to work there, uh, they had this uh, um, zeal or this idealistic uh, vision of building a new world of finance, right? Finance 2.0. Uh, but I had the feeling that you know I didn't really know finance 1.0. Right, um, and in particular, I didn't really know uh, international payment methods, right? And uh, I actually reached out to um, to Revolut, uh, yeah, because they were growing very rapidly, and um, you know, I at the time when I left Coinbase, I uh, 
actually had the opportunity to work uh, or to lead teams at you know both Revolut, Chime, and Newbank, right? And it because I, I I saw the new the embedded finance or the new bank movement really really take off, and I decided to go uh, go join Revolut so that I could learn uh, you know uh, all the variety of international payment methods in in Europe and UK. Yeah, I mean, either which way, two complete rocket ships yeah. um, to go join. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how interesting. But underneath it, I'm starting to try and kind of unravel the drivers as these decisions have been made. And they all sound very logical and shrewd. But underneath it, is it still an acquiring information and knowledge on this knowing quest that you will set something up at some point? So at that point at Coinbase, you feel like you're still in exploring mode. You haven't found what it needs to be. I need mm -hmm. to carry on. Actually, yeah. I'm just curious at this. Yeah. I have patience. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I really like that when I see that mm -hmm. in a guest because I think so much of the media encourages, you know, go to Y Combinator out of university, jump into entrepreneurship. And of course that can work out, um, you know, in, in extreme uh, minority cases um but more often than not you know you need to have gone and built up and accrued some type of secret that not many other people know about so that you can then go and capitalize on it with the skill set to be able to go and do that so i think actually the most successful you know ceos statistically and never trust statistics are somewhere around 46 really contrary to what you see being sold by the media you know certainly over the last 10 years out of silicon valley but the interesting thing is so many of those founders that i've had on the show knew that they wanted to go build at some some point and they either ended up in like a significant role where they weren't the founder but that was fine because the mission was big and the opportunity was huge or they end up as the founder so really interesting to see how that unwinds we'll leave there the revolute into um, sardine moment because I'm going to come back to that. Um, what I'd like to do now is go back really far, as far back as you dare to tell us to set the scene, soups of you know you growing up and the environment and the influences that you had. So if you want to, you know, um, explain that to us, um, that'd be great. Thanks. Oh wow! Um, yeah, so I. Um, uh... I grew up in India. I grew up in a uh, in actually uh, a small town in India, in the eastern half of India. It's a coal mining uh, town called Dhanbad. And my my dad uh, was a you know was a physics professor at a university over there, right? And um, I had an amazing upbringing. You know, uh, you know, was fortunate to start learning coding and programming. Uh, you know, from the sixth grade onwards had found a passion for programming um and then i went the route that a lot of you know uh, young folks in india do which is you know i got into uh, indian institute of technology iit so uh and then See, just uh, a, so, sorry, sorry just yeah. to just to stick with this because I'm, I'm really interested in it yeah you, you had a father who was a professor in physics Mm -hmm. uh, could could you explain maybe some of the um, the experiences that you got from that? Like, were you um, mm -hmm. 
would he kind of uh, spend a lot of time uh, teaching you? Were you kind of um, therefore exposed to um, a level of physics and work and maths and so on and so forth that perhaps was beyond your peer group? Like, what was what was that like? Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that was very true. Yeah, yeah. No, we, um, you know, I I grew up with like, uh, uh, you know, my my dad, you know, teaching uh, or tutoring at home as well. So yeah, I, I remember you know like days I would actually just. Uh, like put my ear to the door and you know like sit there and listen to everything he was teaching right yeah uh, so uh, we grew up with lots of you know university level like physics and math books around us I would see him do uh, like uh, uh, even uh, tutoring on like experimental physics right uh, and he whenever whenever and wherever he would travel he would come back with lots of books for for me right uh, so yeah so I was always a uh, I was always a studious type, right? So uh, I just soaked in any and all books that I would find lying around, right? Yeah. Even if I wouldn't understand it, yeah. So clearly, there's this uh, amazing exposure mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to to an intellectual field. Um, were there any particular mindsets or um, ways of thinking that, you know, whether it was from your father or your father or others at that point mm -hmm. that you feel you might have benefited or had installed into you as well? Yeah, the mindset was that of, you know, um, always being intellectually curious, right? In fact, actually, when I was growing up, you know, um, uh, I actually initially wanted to be a scientist or a researcher, right? So, because uh, my, my father... He has a he has a PhD in physics. He also, you know, uh, worked uh, as a postdoctoral fellow at universities in the U.S. and Canada uh, before settling back in India. So uh, I always wanted to go and invent something, right? So therefore, there was that that creative drive was there, intellectual curiosity was there, uh, and in fact, you know, after. Uh, uh, after IIT, I, I went and I obtained a PhD in the U.S. first. Right? So I went to uh, Houston, Rice University, where I got a PhD in EE uh, with, <clears throat> with a thesis all around uh, distributed systems and network security. Right, And uh, in fact, after the uh, after PhD, then I went on to uh, join a startup, a startup in, uh, which actually, curiously enough, had a small R&D division because they were tinkering and coming up with new product ideas. And we did come launch new product ideas that we you know, uh, uh, researched first and then, you know, launched end-to-end. Uh, -end. And this is the days when, you know, uh, AT&T Research and Bell Labs, these were like really, really uh, uh, famous and they were booming and lots of... Yeah, great new ideas were coming out of these institutions, right? So therefore, equivalently at this uh, startup, which eventually got acquired by Boeing, you know, I got exposed to you know, doing really, really uh, <clears throat> cutting edge research around, you know, detecting anomalous traffic or uh, cyber threats being carried by, you know, uh, large computer uh, network institutions or by large, large telcos, right? So, um, so in fact, yeah, the the funny story is that initially, like up until two thousand five, I I I actually up until two thousand five till two thousand ten, I would have probably thought that I would go into academia, 
because you know I, I was very drawn to research. But then I realized that you know the 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 face of uh, computer research or computer science research was changing. Uh, it was it was you know more interesting to be in in in, in industry and still do that cutting edge research. And there's a the therefore the creative instincts that I had, which were leading me towards a, a path of academia, then switched into like okay, let me go found something from uh, uh, from scratch. How how do you um, see that potentially coming back into the fray for you? Um, without talking about specifics, you know you have this platform which is incredibly innovative, which um, you know clearly has. Uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, I'm sure you either have already or are thinking about R and D. Mm -hmm. So that circle comes back, uh, you know, and uh, you get to potentially fund that type of research. Are you thinking about that? Have you done that? Yeah. So uh, my realization was that in 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 such an applied field as computer science, you know, the the horizon uh, of research that you're looking at is is really not very far. Right. It's like a few years, right? Uh, unlike fundamental science research, where you know, you are looking at doing something which gets commercialized like 15, 20 years into the future. So in in my in our case, right? So we we do have a, a you know a bend towards you know solving problems which are hard using uh, uh, you know cutting edge AI. So that's that's the sort of the fundamental thesis at Sardine. Uh, however, we are never gonna, you know, commit to doing, you know, like several years of research into launching a new product. It's all about making uh, incremental progress with an eye towards the future. Because you know, we don't have the in the startup, we don't have the luxury of, you know, uh, working on something for several years before you commercialize it. Right. Yes, I understand. That that yeah, makes some yeah. sense. Um, yeah. At um, Marna, we have a, a lab where we um, we have sponsored. Um, some PhDs focused on the future of work, particularly in blockchain um, around <laughs> communication and distributed teams. The title carries on. I'll stop there. Um, and uh, you know, if you're not necessarily doing it for IP, you do get good determinations back around three years into it. Um, but no, I understand. Uh, <laughs> you're going at a rapid pace. Um, but but it, for for me, it's a shame. Um, and that was really what I wanted to ask you as well. Is I, I know so many kind of brilliant people on both sides, but the the way that it pollinates together is isn't so isn't so good. You know, as private mm -hmm. companies uh, acquiring more intellectual um, capacity and you know changing the world more and more and more, you know, it's not good enough for IBM to be sponsoring the research anymore. So I I, I do wonder how we solve for that because you know the community of PhD or you know. Um, highly specific technical graduates coming through are really, really interested in technology in the startup world and science and engineering. Um, so it's, it just feels like something that could be a platform in the middle there could be a big player. I don't know if you have any ideas around that or if that was a frustration of yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, um, I think the, um, uh, the, especially in topics like blockchain, right, or cryptography, these are hard, hard problems, right? In fact, if you, but if you look at it, right? Uh, Bitcoin was not invented in an academic lab, right? 
right? It was invented by a pseudonymous person, Satoshi Nakamoto, or a group of people called Satoshi Nakamoto, right? Uh, so that I would say is a failure. It's somewhat a failure of the academic system that some of the best ideas are coming from, you know, outside of academic research, right? Uh, but now, of course, you know, academia has has uh, taken an interest in in blockchain technologies, et cetera, right? So you've had like uh, famous uh, faculty such as Emin Gunserer uh, from Cornell, I believe, right? So he's launched his own blockchain. And there's many, many examples like that, right? Professor Don Song from UC Berkeley did something. Uh, so I think what we are seeing is, you know, Kind of a shift like earlier days like faculty they re really in the us at least relied on funding from national science foundation or darpa right uh in order to do some of this research but now they're realizing that you know uh that they, they need to keep an eye towards you know uh you know what the the uh, uh what, what is possible in the private realm as well right so that's why you've seen that you know the the days of those big uh computer science labs are over like no one has no one ever built another lab like HP Labs or AT&T Research or Bell Labs, right? It's uh, because yeah, everyone realizes in CS that you know it's it's all very applied. Yeah, uh, that's 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 really mm -hmm. um, interesting to mm -hmm. think of it like that. Yeah. So coming back to where mm -hmm. you kind of like forming the career, mm -hmm. um, and then we've gone through um, the part of the Coinbase story before we move on to revolute um what's going on with you at this point in, in you know outside of work so we can start to understand you know the, the really other important elements as well to soups so you've come over from india um you're studying um in america and then you you stay in america from that point on yep mm -hmm. So I came here in 2000, yeah. Yeah, okay. And so you're you're in the Valley? Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right. Yeah, I'm in Berkeley, Berkeley, California. And, you know, add some color to what's going on in that, that you know, those, those kind of like, I mean, now obviously this is covering two decades, but when you get to Coinbase, so what's your situation outside of work? Mm -hmm. Oh, um, so yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm married. I'm, uh, been married uh, for about 15 years uh, and to someone uh, who is, uh, you know, essentially she did, my wife, she did a postdoc at uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, so she's the smart one in the family, a postdoc in biochemistry. And now she teaches at the UC Berkeley Extension Center. She teaches biochem and, and molecular biology to, uh, to, to uh, folks wanting to become doctors, to future doctors. Uh, we have two kids, you know, seven and eleven, uh, two boys, and um, yeah. So my my life uh, outside of sardine is really just spending time with the family. I work only uh, on during the weekdays. I work really really hard, right? Like you know, from morning seven a.m. till like night one a.m. every day. But then in the weekends, I I don't work. I just try to spend some time with the family, go for bike rides, you know, just hang out with my kids, spend time with them. Well, congratulations for being able to maintain that with a startup. Um, but you know, if you're super productive in the week, it is it is possible. Um, so let's let's dig into some of that. Uh, some of that. So, um, just going to go through a few questions. Mm -hmm. We have a man around. 
uh, ultimately trying to find out what your mana is. Just a few other questions to start with. So let's start with any particular habits that you have and in the week, in the morning, so that we can get the scene. Oh, um, <clears throat> any particular habits I have during the week? Uh, as in, what is my week? In, in the morning, like? yeah, in the morning. What, what <laughs> you got some rituals? Uh, you know, my, my ritual is really just waking up and uh, uh, rushing as quickly as I can to uh, my espresso machine and making myself an espresso, right? You're mentally in the right zone then. You don't need to go and have a, a nice shower to, you know, not go flip out at the whole... Uh, well, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I do need a shower. <laughs> I need a good shower every day in the morning. And that's, yeah. Some of my best thinking is in my shower, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, but that's almost like meditation. Um, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, do you have any uh, particular mantra or an affirmation that you come back to regularly? Oh, um, interesting. Uh, I think I, I, I thrive in a, uh, in, in a creative environment, right? So uh, uh, my, my mantra for life is really, you know, always, uh, always questioning why something can't be, doing, can't be done better, always thinking about how can you improve something that you're working on, right? So I'm always driven by, you know, uh, sort of pushing the boundaries on anything. Love it. Is there anything that keeps you up at night at the moment? Um, <laughs> no, luckily, luckily things are good. I mean, the only other thing would be uh, the, lately it's really just the state of the economy, right? So uh, it's hard to see a lot of my, uh, friends and colleagues and, you know, uh, lose the jobs, right? So we are going through sort of a rough patch in the tech industry overall. So yeah, that's that's the only thing that, you know, sort of uh, background worries me. However, I do see uh, still that there's lots of amazing companies still being formed, even though some others are going out of business. So uh, yeah, the net-net, uh, I think they're moving in the right direction. So nothing to do with what you're seeing trend-wise with um, with fraud is keeping you up at night. Oh yeah, that is always there. <laughs> 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 but I, I, yeah, I, you, uh, uh, sort of got you know used to it, right? Like uh, in the early days of your know, Coinbase, I would I would remember it used to really keep me up at night, literally, right? Like the the fact that fraud rates. When they would spike up, it used to affect my my mood, my blood pressure, my sleep, right? Uh, <clears throat> but now that you know, we but, but a lot of that was learning how to control fraud for fraud rates. So uh, now I'm fortunate at starting to be blessed with an amazing team, and uh, we know how to how to manage the fraud risk, right? A lot of the worry that people typically have is because they don't really know what to do in such certain situations. But now that you know, myself, my team, they're all like former fraud fighters. You know, my co-founders, uh, one of them used to fight fraud at PayPal and Uber. Uh, I have assembled a team of, you know, fraud fighters from many, many other industries and companies, right? So we, we know how to deal with the problem. Internally, you know, uh -huh. as, a, as a founder, there's external. It could be in the personal life. It could be 
macro economy internally in the business is there a thing that is um a challenge concerning um you need to solve right now oh yeah um <clears throat> So we we run Sardine like a compound startup, right? So we have uh, essentially three business units inside Sardine. And the goal would be uh, in future as well to keep adding new business units, right? So instead of executing linearly, like, you know, you get product market fit and then you scale that. Uh, and then you think about the next idea. What we did was like uh, slightly different. So we said, we will find product market fit in one area, right? And then while we're scaling it in parallel, we'll start another one, right? So that's why uh, we have essentially three business units. So first one was risk platform that I described earlier in the, in the show. Second one is our crypto on-ramp. And now <clears throat> both of them have product market fit. Uh, we are now acquiring customers. The third one is what we call risk insights. So we are bootstrapping that right now. Uh, risk insights is essentially our attempt at you know, uh, building uh, one of the largest uh, fraud data consortiums out there, right? So uh, of course, yeah, with our risk platform, we already have a consortium of sorts, right? Where all our customers, they're contributing data uh, and you know, uh, each of them, they benefit from the data that others have contributed, right? However, with risk insights, we wanna bring non-customers into the fold as well. So they can query uh, our consortium and then the consortium keeps growing larger. The fundamental problem that we're trying to solve with risk insights is uh, the one the one of the first ones is ACH fraud. And then the second one would be uh, what we call authorized push payment fraud, which takes the form of uh, Zelle scams in, in the Zelle network in the US or the scams that you see in faster payments in the UK, right? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so now first and foremost with ACH fraud, you know, um, in the US you would, find that, you know, of course, the banks, the big banks, they share data with each other. So if you have like a stolen Chase account, you can't really walk in into Bank of America or Wells and connect the stolen Chase account because every night they're sharing a blacklist of stolen banks with each other. However, you could take the stolen Chase account and connect it to a Chime, right? And now take this Chime account and connect it to a Varo, take the Varo account, connect it to Digit, to Acorns and so on, right? And none of these are uh, fintechs that share that information with each other, right? And fraudsters know this and they take advantage of it. So that they, they create this chain so that they can launder their stolen proceeds. It's hard to break that chain unless you get all these fintechs sharing information with each other. So that is what we are attempting to do, attempting to do with the risk insights. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. I've seen that in a different context as well, um, where that all needs to connect up. If you had a front cover of a publication dear to you, one you'd really want to be on the front of, might be Forbes, could be Bloomberg News, all of these things I'm sure you've been on or you're about to get on anyway, Soups, but this is the first big one and it's you on it. What would be the message that you'd put on the front cover? Oh, interesting. Uh, well, <laughs> I never wake up thinking I want to be on the front cover, but uh, the the message I would like to be known for would be, you know, uh, or in fact, want, would want Sardine to be known for is that, you know, we are all about reducing the cost of payments 
by fighting fraud, right? Because if you really think about it, why do we pay, uh, you know, or why does a merchant pay an interchange fee when you swipe your card at the merchant, right? Why, when you go to buy a cup of coffee at a Starbucks, you know, there's a fee of like three and a half percent, right? That fee, when Visa or MasterCard, they were started, that fee was actually meant uh, uh, to, to, to take into account the cost of fraud, right? Maybe you know, someone stole your card and is buying that cup of coffee, right? But uh, I, I would argue that, you know, that fee needs to come to much, much lower. So the cost of payments is really the cost of fraud. So we want to be known for uh, or known as the company which uh, brings the cost of fraud to near zero such that we make payments uh, cheaper and thereby, you know, uh, accessible to the to, to everyone, including the unbanked and the underbanked. Right. Soups, making payments cheaper mm-hmm. with Saudi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, faster, faster, cheaper, and more secure, right? Amazing. Um, so just to explain for anyone in the audience or, or you for clarity, Mana is... Um, a word that we took from gaming that means your magic you have your power your life and then you have your mana your magic think of it as a superpower are you able to you know um swim really fast can you fly can you uh like a chameleon disappear and hide yourself whatever it might be soups what would you say your mana is I think my mana is uh, being able to uh, think outside the box, especially when it comes to uh, when it comes to any sort of like uh, detective work that involves data, right? So, uh, so which is why you know, like I I started doing uh, data science, machine learning before the term data science was coined and uh, started applying it to detecting cybersecurity threats initially days, then started using to detect click fraud in ad tech, and then now uh, payments fraud, right? So my, my mana is like, like, you know, if you if you tell me that there's uh, a pattern in, in a set of data, I'll, you know, I'll sit down and find it. So that clearly takes um, a bunch of technical capability Mm -hmm. um it also takes curiosity Mm you've got to like enjoy solving that right Mm -hmm. you're you're bringing both of those Mm -hmm. the out of the box element Mm -hmm. what's that what do you think your mana in that element you know outside Mm -hmm. of the sardine tin how are you how are you thinking about (laughs) that to achieve that yeah yeah, so that's about you know I never uh, I never say give I never give up you know I keep pounding my head against a problem, so um, like a few examples of that would be you know at Coinbase for example we got hit by some of the most sophisticated fraud right, um, uh, one for example was SIM swap attacks right so which is you know somebody uh, calls up your telco and ports your phone number to a device that they control by social engineering the call center operator, right? And once they have access to your uh, phone, then they can actually switch over, you know, uh, 
or change the password to your email and change the password to your bank because most of these other uh, uh, accounts, they use SMS as a second factor. And they also use SMS for account recovery. So now that, you know, uh, so we saw uh, you know, lots of people starting to get their phones uh, uh, SIM swapped. And then, you know, their passwords to the Coinbase accounts were being changed and then they were losing funds out of their accounts, right? We kept pounding our head against this problem as to, you know, this is this has nothing to do with, with, with the crypto exchange, right? This is basically a vulnerability at a telco. Yep. Like vulnerability in the processes at the telco, they should not be just changing or porting your phone number willy-nilly to another uh, random Joe Schmo who called the call center, right? So that lends itself to the crypto being stolen, right? Anyway, so to make the long story short, right? Like we kept pounding our head against this problem until until I figured out a solution, right? So it was basically, it involved uh, literally me, anyone I would meet at any conference or any phone call I would have with anyone who uh, is in the data business, asking them, can you help me solve this problem? Here's the problem, right? Took me like six months until I identified ways of solving it. So that that's so that where I'm coming down to is like you know I yeah it's maybe that intellectual curiosity when it comes to like you know the uh, when I was doing my PhD thesis as well like when you do a PhD you have to come up with a way of solving a uh, a problem that you've also defined. <laughs> so therefore the at least what I learned from my PhD, which is applicable here in uh, Sardine and my for the career has been that never never give up until you come up with that sort of solution. Right? Or, mm -hmm. along with that, is it that mm -hmm. you've got a notion that somewhere on the planet there's the enemy who are, you know, benefiting from this, you know, fraud and you want to make sure that it, you know, uh, is you're on the side of winning, right? Because you're on the side of doing good. Um, it's it's horrible for people to be, you know, uh, have this. What actually sounds like quite, it's a shrewd but a basic thing they're doing, right? They're not using like the most sophisticated <laughs> hacking techniques here. Mm -hmm. But yeah. that's what made it complicated because it's with mm -hmm. the telco, and so. Yeah. Obviously, you're bringing stubbornness to solve the problem. You're using mm -hmm. snowball sampling. You're talking to everybody. But it's mm -hmm. also like, you, you know, you mentioned like any kind of detective situation. It's yeah. like that, right? Yeah, it, yeah. It's, very it's much like so. that. Yeah. And it's like this real life thing that's perpetuating. Mm -hmm. What um, What's the example right now of anything that's the most like heightened detective situation that Sardine is dealing with right now? If you can talk about it, Supes. No, absolutely. So I think that uh, the most heightened one, the, the several in fact, but one of them would be, uh, there's a lot of crypto uh, uh, scams happening, which are lending themselves to payment fraud. So for example, um, you know, like if you use Twitter, I'm sure you get tweeted at by some random folks who are saying, here's this airdrop or here's, here's this yeah. giveaway. And now, with Twitter not being able to actually detect those scams, it actually leads to a payment fraud. And I'll explain in a second how. You get conned by such tweets, or it could be on other social media platforms as well, right? Like you then click that link thinking you're gonna get, you're gonna get to participate in a airdrop. You click that link, 
you get taken into, you know, if you already have, uh, you know, a non-custodial wallet like a MetaMask, et cetera, you then sign a transaction, yeah. right? Thinking that you're going to get a, a airdrop, except what you don't realize is that you're actually, you know, uh, signing a malicious payload, which now, you know, has ability to like completely wipe out your wallet clean, right? And then the next thing that happens is that you don't even know that this has happened, that you've signed something malicious, which is going to hurt you in the future. Now, in the few, in a few days later, you know, you actually, let's say, uh, want to buy crypto, not a few days, like even months later, you want to buy crypto, you buy crypto, uh, you think that the crypto is going to land in your wallet, except it doesn't. Because there's this malicious payload that you signed, which essentially then any crypto which lands in your wallet, it just takes it and, uh, uh, you know, withdraws it out out of the door right away. So I don't know if you saw recently, there was this news of Kevin Rose losing about a million dollars worth of uh, yeah. uh, you know, NFT and uh, other crypto assets yeah. out of his wallet from a similar attack, right? So that is a big problem. So what the crypto industry doesn't realize is that, you know, our UX is actually pretty broken in crypto to the extent that, you know, people don't even know what they're signing when they are signing a transaction. And there's a, a big need for what I would call like a, like almost like a very sign for Web3, right? Somebody who verifies that this is some contract that you can trust or this is a URL you can trust. And because that doesn't exist today, that lends itself to card fraud later, right? Yeah. Because now like I, I, like I don't know that my wallet has been hijacked. I go on a buy crypto using my own card and I don't get the crypto delivered. So now crypto on ramps such as Sardine, then we suffer because, you know, the, the 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 victims and they go and charge back. They're saying that, hey, I didn't get my crypto, but you didn't get your crypto because you were actually scammed earlier, right? So um, we are um, you know, just coming into February in 2023 for any future listeners for context. So yeah, the Kevin Rose scenario is, is, is slightly surprising because he mm -hmm. is someone you suspect would be sophisticated, um, which you know, again, proves the point of, of what you're just talking about. Um, it's also off the back of um, late in 2022, some pretty dramatic events, uh, <laughs> right? Um, so I saw a tweet in the last week from uh, CZ, the, um, the founder of Funnel, uh, saying, it feels like the market is starting to come back which I'd say it certainly has looked like over the last 10 days mm -hmm. <laughs> from a price perspective and maybe from a confidence perspective. But what he said was super interesting and it made me want to ask you a question around this. But he suspects that what it might have done is pushed back what we could call Web2 or um, you know, incumbents, large organizations, institutes from their level of confidence to come into the space. And actually what he was saying is, well, that's an opportunity for everybody who's Web3 native. But you sit in an interesting position where it could be called 2.5, I don't want to misquote, but you know, you're know, you bridging very much, which I think is the most exciting thing, where nobody should really know if it's Web2 or Web3, it's just this is the technical frontier, we're making payments, let's make it more seamless, let's make it cheaper, et cetera, et cetera. So this, this does affect your strategy What's your view on the events that have happened at the end of 2022 
and the implications around the confidence of incumbents to come into the space. What are you saying? What do you think? Crypto is here to stay. It's not going to go anywhere. But I think I think the the the, the events of twenty twenty two have shown us that you know uh, that the era of speculation uh, is is either going to be over or should get over. And you know, uh, in order for crypto to be truly uh, a meaningful uh, part of the new financial infrastructure, we have to start thinking about you know other ways of using it. So what I'm incredibly bullish on as the use case of crypto is essentially use of crypto for cross-border remittances, as well as you know uh, for uh, cross-border commerce, right? So one of the things, for example, when I was you know I, I travel quite a bit, so when I was traveling to Brazil or Argentina. I saw firsthand what a high inflationary economy can do to the you know uh, to the way people think or operate. So all the folks in Argentina or Brazil, like they all want to get paid in a stable currency. They all want to get paid in U.S. dollars. In fact, they would all much rather just get get paid in a U.S. dollar stable coin like USDC, right? Uh, so that's the that's that's where you know um, essentially uh, stable coins especially dollar-denominated ones or stable currency like euro-denominated ones can have like a very meaningful impact in the whole world, right? Because, uh, you know, in, in some sense, you could argue that the, uh, that it allows the U.S. dollar to extend its, uh, uh, its, its uh, or to continue to further its, its uh, you know, uh, place in the world as, you know, the, 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 the currency of the world, right? It gets, that ambition gets furthered by the presence or by the use of you know stable coins backed by US dollars, right? So that is I'm incredibly bullish on. In fact, you know we are uh, at Sardine. We are, you know, we we are building a product to allow folks, uh, you know, who are employed by a US based employer anywhere in the world to get paid in a stable coin, a USDC in USDC. Right? Second one is uh, use of uh, crypto for FX conversion, right? So, so for example, you know, when uh, so companies like Revolut, right? Like when I went there, they uh, they really showed like the the hunger that uh, that that citizens in Europe have for you know uh, converting from one currency to the other, right? At the cheapest FX rates, which is what led to the tremendous growth or popularity of Revolut, right? Now, in, like you know. As this world gets more connected, as people start traveling worldwide from one place to the other, right? Uh, the way FX markets operate will have to change. And in fact, you know, no one has been using crypto to do the FX conversion yet. However, just recently, I don't know if you saw this article, uh, Uniswap and Circle, they launched this very amazing article which said that you know you are they like using a, a Uniswap pool, you could actually go from USD to Euro at a cheaper exchange rate than if you went into the traditional FX market. One of the reasons for that is that, you know, the, the Uniswap pool, it's 24 seven, whereas the regular FX markets, they close and they only run during certain business hours, right? So that goes to show that, yeah, there's, there's a lot of possibility over here about rewiring our legacy financial infra, which runs on old school, you know, Vostro Nostro or runs on, you know, uh, like things which were built like 30, 40 years ago, like Swift, all of that can be rewired using crypto. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so of the same uh, mindset of what you talk to. 
But when that frontier comes in and when it's put into retail hand, this, of course, as ever, um, can be utilised by bad actors. So we see, you know, a need for the likes of Sardine more than ever because we're both 100% confident that, you know, the blockchain crypto is here to stay and that will end up being beneficial. But because it's foreign, there is more manipulation that can happen. And so, you know, every now and again, that can affect the sentiment in the market. But you see the talent in it. You see the infrastructure being built. You see the investment coming in. You do see the appetite from the incumbents. Uh, It's going to be an incredibly exciting seven years. Just one more thing I wanted to ask you around um, generally, particularly with your background of being, you know, um, somebody who was uh, working on machine learning, AI before the phrase was coined data science and data Mm -hmm. analytics and so on and so forth. Um, How do you see um, artificial intelligence playing a part coupled in the blockchain space? Actually, uh, AI, uh, especially, you know, it's been super exciting the last couple of months, right? Like the chat GPT being launched, uh, built on top of this language model, GPT-3, right? Uh, So my fear is that, you know, uh, first and foremost, uh, AI in the hands of scammers and fraudsters is going to create a lot of havoc. Today, you know, you and I, we could spot a fraudulent text or an email based on the spelling mistakes or the grammatical mistakes they're making, right? Uh, but now, you know, once chat GPT is being used by these fraudsters and scammers, you know, they'll have near flawless English or the local language, right? That'll be one. Uh, the uh, the the second thing that I worry about is that you know online identity is very very difficult to really establish verifiably online, right? So you know that's why you have uh, you know documentary KYC providers. We work with several of them as part of Sardine, where you take a picture of your driver license and then you take a selfie. Now imagine with deep fakes, right? Uh, you know in, when you're moving your face side to side. You know, deep fake could easily do that, right? Uh, even when you, uh, when someone asks you to say something, you can actually have deep fake models actually say those words as well. So then it becomes very, very difficult to establish you are truly who you say you are. However, you know, and that's where now Sardine's pitch comes in, right? A lot of this uh, visible uh, uh, identity, like where you're visibly trying to prove something, you know, you can gain. But what you cannot gain is your intrinsic identity, as in how do you hold the phone when you type or, you know, uh, your typing speed, right, uh, et cetera. So we essentially at Sardine, uh, we build a lot of machine learning models which look at your intrinsic behavior. We're big believers in intrinsic behavior monitoring. And uh, so where I was going with that refrain was that, you know, AI you know, is going to up the stakes in the battle for establishing identity online. However, use of AI to to look at, you know, how you hold the phone, whether you handshakes or, you know, how you type, et cetera, use of those, you know, invisible intrinsic behavior patterns can still fight against uh, the the other uh, AI tools that bad actors are relying on, right? Oh my God. There's so much dialogue around, um, mm-hmm. you know, probably for the last, five years you know the the 
the pros and cons of AI and, you know, is it going to suddenly eradicate the human race and one side and <laughs> the other side being, you know, well, yeah. we'll kind of uh, benefit from it, you know, as long as we write the right type of rules and, you know, it's it's separated. It's not all one. But, you know, GBT3 is what it is, but four goes onto the net. Um, and like we've seen the state of robotics as well. You know, you see de deep fakes where you believe that it's the person now, as you guys obviously like really deeply uh, mm -hmm. into, into analyzing and to hear that, you know, the stakes now are having to understand how I hold a phone or how I type. You know, someone who used those early Revolut products where, you know, I'd, so I'd take a selfie of myself and just write my name there to prove it. In that <laughs> amount of time, it's become that much more sophisticated. It's unbelievable. unbelievable. Should, you've got to, you've got to like release a program um, so that we can all keep up to speed each like month with like <laughs> where where the war's at now. Yeah. Um, so it's it's, uh, it's obviously completely fascinating work that you're doing. Um, okay, look, I've taken a lot of your very precious time, which I really appreciate. Um, just a couple final things mm -hmm. i want you to finish off talking about the company um so we haven't really got um scale of the company itself so, so how many people are you at at the moment oh yeah so we are uh, close to 90 people right now we are remote first a global company most employees in in the us and canada but we do have a few employees in many other countries like brazil egypt japan india etc amazing and um this is amazing um book mm -hmm. that um your investor wrote um mm -hmm. <laughs> which is a, uh, about culture wrote two books mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. the hard thing about the hard thing the hard things about the hard thing something like that yeah um and you are how you act um yeah and he really believes that you know great leadership and so on you know, if it is really strong, can create a strong culture. And that's best when that's close to the culture of what the business is doing. Hence, you know, keeping your desk really immaculately tidy might be good in a chip maker. You know, in Airbnb, having an incredibly creative environment that represents the, you know, apartments that you're renting out might make a really strong culture. And these are materialistic things. It can sometimes be... Um, mind models and so on and so forth i'd love you to talk about that um you know the the things that you have embedded into the culture of the company that you're proud of a couple of things that you know uh, we have in our culture values so one is um i like to say we operate at the speed of thought so i'm um, i'm very you know action oriented uh don't like to sit down and pontificate right uh, so we, if 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 we want to do something you know we should quickly do it to prove it uh, that it works or not, otherwise just move on, right? So uh, that's one. The second one is, uh, yeah, very much of a uh, customer-obsessed culture. So uh, we, uh, from a BD point of view, like a business development point of view, we have, you know, everyone literally in the company, they, they are working hard to acquire new customers. You know, my head of compliance does BD, but, you know, of course, my head of legal does BD, my, uh, of course, head of sales, and I have a head of uh, BD, they are doing BD. But then uh, after a customer has been integrated, we have a very much, uh, like a very obsessive culture about keeping the customers happy. Uh, 
so we have uh, like we we set up Slack channels with pretty much most of our customers right at the time of launch and and many of them after they have launched uh, we have weekly calls with our customers we build strong relationships with them uh, because we are we are there to essentially support them uh, you know with uh, acting almost like an extension of their own fraud and compliance teams right yeah I love it in the, in the yeah. um in the BD phase, mm-hmm. I assume you're involved in it. Um, yeah, yeah. And okay, so how how kind of straight down the line is your organization at this? Because I mean, you you've got good traction, but there's a market to win. You know, do you mm-hmm. have uh, intense outreach and marketing, or is it from serendipity and network that you know, or both? Like, how are you operating that flow? Um, We've honestly not invested as much uh, into like outbound uh, efforts, right? Uh, we, we've grown primarily by word of mouth in the initial days. And via a lot of uh, sort of, you know, use of our own combined networks of myself and my team. And then you relying on our investors to also provide intros, right? Uh, actually, in the in the early days, we we you know like whenever we would have like any inbound investor wanting to invest, we just ask them, "Can you introduce us to you know a couple of your portfolio companies, right?" And it used to work both ways. They would they would get data on us, and we would potentially have a shot at landing them as a customer. So that was the early days. Then recently, our outbound efforts have primarily focused on just content. Yep. So. Uh, we have a head of content, Simon Taylor, who's based in the UK as well. Um, he's a famous guy. He writes his own blog. Um, was formerly co-founder of 11FS. And um, so he puts out a lot of content uh, as as well as I put out a lot of content. I uh, tweet or put stuff on LinkedIn almost daily, right? And just building up that brand awareness of Sardine. Uh, and then that that lends itself to you know, a lot of inbound uh, customers coming out, coming to us, right? But uh, now in 2023, you know, we are gonna, of course, double down on content. We're also gonna do like more events, attend more conferences. And we're also gonna, you know, sort of put more efforts into like outbound marketing as well. Right? Yeah, okay. Um, as, as someone who, um, you know, comes across Simon's presence mm-hmm. on the event scene, in, in the UK fintech and Web3 arena, I think I'd only be doing everybody else a service for you to tell us what you think is his worst trait. Really, you know, some negative thoughts about Simon Taylor. Come on, Sue, <laughs> g- give it to us. This is going to be the clip for the whole show. I can't ever figure yeah. else. Which is- <laughs> so Simon cannot function unless he has uh, several bottles of Diet Coke. Ah, God. I, what a terrible and, person! <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 he's still so fit. He doesn't have like you know uh, uh, a sugar overload or anything. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was I was reading recently. Um, you know, yeah. I've got like a VC Twitter just mm-hmm. hits me. So I just think the, the the whole world is is venture capitalist humor. But someone's saying like, I've got a disproportional amount of friends who just drink diet coke who were really successful <laughs> you know what my diet coke drinking was it diet coke or diet pepsi what's what's simon drinking diet coke i think yeah. it's diet coke there we go yeah. classic 
<laughs> get a massive order in. Um, okay, fantastic. So just to con conclude, um, if you could set out the scene, um, it can be as far as you like to go, you know, be 300 years, like, uh, like Massa's vision for SoftBank, if you want, but it could also be several years. Um, whatever you'd like, what's the Hollywood, you know, A-star version for Sardine? Oh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think, you know, we, we want Sardine to be like a 100-year-old uh, uh, company, so to say. We want Sardine to be uh, uh, the network of networks. That's the goal, right? Yeah. As you see new payment trails come up, crypto, I would argue, is one new form of payment trail. You have UPI in India, faster payments in the UK. Uh, you have Alipay, et cetera, in China. You have, you know, Zelle and FedNow and uh, uh, RTP in the US. You have PIX in Brazil. These are all new forms of payment rails coming up. Uh, of course, you have the legacy like the Swift, Visa, MasterCard, all of those as well. But what you don't have is no one is actually sharing information across each other, right? And, um, you know, for example, if uh, a fraudster uh, took over my bank account, they're not gonna, you know, uh, uh, care how they take out money from my bank. They might use like a faster payment method. They might try the checkout. They might just, you know, uh, just walk in into an ATM. But all these networks, if they don't share data with each other, they'll be sort of, they'll have these blind spots. And therefore, I would argue that you know, in, in over the next several years, what we're going to see is the cost, the the fraud landscape is going to shift from your traditional card fraud into scams. Yeah. More and more of uh, folks being scammed and money being taken out of their bank accounts. And in that world, the way we think about fraud has to completely change. And as faster payment, as we like to say, with faster payments comes faster fraud, and somebody has to be there to stop it. So we, in the long run, you know, uh, want to be uh, sort of this network of networks helping reduce the cost of payments and keep payments still secure, even when we move to a world of faster payments. Absolutely massive. I love it. Yeah. Um, so the final thing is, because it's searching for Mana, so it's as much about you and we've got to understand your your story and how you think and you know why you have done all of this to now and i implore you to to you know not worry about sounding uh you know grandiose because most founders at this point will tie it back to sardine but i want you to not do that let's assume that happens that makes you an incredibly successful person who's had a very fulfilling um uh, entrepreneurship journey long may it last forevermore right but what what could what could you see yourself doing with this? What type of platform might you try and set up also outside of this? Do you go back into that academic interest? You know, well, how are you, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've got very little time to think about this because you're such a busy mission on your hands, right? But for for to indulge us, what might we see you do with this? you know, platform outside of that. Yeah, no, so um, um, there's a part of me which, uh, yeah, <clears throat> uh, you know, it, as, as Sardine gets larger and, you know, becomes, uh, you know, we 
planted the seeds for sardine to be a compound startup. A lot of times, you know, a lot of companies do it when they are much older, right? So we have planted the seed that, you know, we'll always take more and more new bets, right? And create new and new business units inside the company. So one way of thinking about sardine would be, yeah, we become uh, uh, a larger payments company, which has, you know, uh, multiple different business units. Uh, but now even outside of sardine, what I would love to do is, you know, uh, I'm an idea man. I have more ideas than I could execute on. So at some point of time, you know, maybe we'll set up some sort of an incubation unit inside Sardine to bring many of these ideas to fruition as well, right? All with the combined theme of, you know, making uh, payments faster, instant, and secure. Yeah, I love it. Oh, it's so exciting. Mm -hmm. um, I'm at the kind of phase where, you know, um, 10 years of operating because uh, there's so much to carry on building, I'm really excited to do. But at some point, to be able to put yourself in the situation, to be able to, um, you know, uh, choose people who can operate better than you in this era or have got the energy to go do it whilst you um, you invest, you know, time or expertise or network into them. I think it's such an exciting zone to be in. Um, so, look, Supes, thanks so much for your time. Congratulations for all the success today. Lots more to do, keeping us safe. Uh, mm -hmm. I look forward to touching in on, uh, on 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 this topic regularly, and unfortunately, see where AI takes this new uh, this new battle. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the Searching for Mana show. Absolutely, it was a pleasure, and yeah, I had a lot of fun chatting with you, Lord. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome, thank you. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Searching for Mana podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it, and hope to see you again next time please subscribe to our YouTube, Spotify, or iTunes to make sure you receive all the latest episodes as they are released.